0: You're listening to audio from Highland Baptist Church in Waco, Texas. To find out more about Highland, go to www.hbcwaco.org. Here today, we're trying to wrap our minds around Christmas, the reality that Christ has come to, to us. And since it's supposed to be 76 degrees tomorrow, I figure i better remind you, it actually is about Christmas time right now. We're in a new series called, called Christ Has Come. And what we're doing, we're looking at five different things, one per week, of what it means for us, what it means for humanity, what it means for, for eternity, that, that Christ has come. So these next few weeks, we're going to behold Jesus. We're going to lift him up and, and, and wonder and in, in amazement. We're going to worship him because this Christ has come. He has come to us. He has come for us. He has come to be with us. Uh, What we looked at last week, one of the first implications, if you will, of of Christ having come is simply this. There is now a new way to relate to God. Uh, There was an old way, the old testimony of God, the Old Testament. Uh, There was a fear of God. We stood afar from God. We couldn't press closely to God. Uh, Sacrifice had to be made. In fact, it had to be, be made annually. And every time that sacrifice was made, it just reminded us of what sorry people we are. But now that Christ has come, we can press close to God. We can approach God, not with fear, but with confidence because of Christ. Christ has become that sacrifice once and for all. So now when we draw near to God, we don't draw near to him and reminded of our sin. We draw near to him and we're reminded of our adoption. That we are daughters and sons of God through Christ Jesus. We can now walk closely with him, but only because Christ has come. Uh, Here's the second impact, if you will, because Christ has come. Kind of our, our thought for today, light has now entered the darkness of our world. And that's the second impact of the reality of God putting on flesh, coming in Christ Jesus to us. Light has now entered the darkness of our world. And when light appears, darkness has to flee. The very nature of, of light is that light overcomes darkness. Darkness cannot overcome light. So, the scientific nature of light is this you can gather all the darkness in the entire universe and press it against light, and it cannot push back light. But you can also take one flicker of light and press it against the known darkness of the universe, and it always pushes away darkness. This is the nature of light in the physical realm. It's also the nature of light in the spiritual realm that when Christ came, he began to push back the darkness in our world, personally began to push back the darkness in our lives and our hearts as well. So the light of the world has entered into the darkness of our world and our hearts and it has changed everything because Christ has come. Let me just say to the Christ followers in the room, if you're a follower of Jesus, You've put your trust, your faith, your life in him, and you belong to him, and you are in Christ. The fact that light has come into the world changes everything for you, because light has also come into your life. The light of the world living in you, sons of of God, daughters of God. We're going to go to Isaiah chapter 9 today, so I hope you have your copy of God's Word, or maybe you can uh, share with someone who's next to you. Or maybe you can go to your smart device. And before we read that, let me kind of, kind of help get you there to Isaiah. First of all, it's the 23rd book in the Old Testament, which probably doesn't help you at all. But if you'll go to the middle of the, of the Old Testament, or the middle of your Bible, uh, it goes Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah. And you can go to, to the ninth chapter. But before we get there, let me just give you a little context of what is happening here in Isaiah chapter nine. Let me give you a few moments to, to get there before we read this. Isaiah chapter nine, this will be the only place where we are for the morning. Isaiah lived 700 years before the coming of Christ. And and his name means, the name Isaiah means God saves or he will save us, which is a very appropriate name for him because all throughout the the prophet Isaiah, or the book of Isaiah, he is informing us or he is outlining for us how God will save us. Let me step back and give you a little historical context before we jump into Isaiah chapter 9. It was a divided nation. You have the 10 tribes up north. There was the capital of Samaria. Then you have the two tribes. Remember, there's 12 total, so 10 up north, two below. This was the nation of Judah. And and Jerusalem was the capital down there. The two of them, of course, were in conflict. But more than that, they were in conflict with with nations that were all around them. Now, let me me give you a little picture of what was happening there at, at that time. It was a divided nation. There had been no godly leaders for for many years, maybe even many generations at this point. Israel had put her trust in prosperity. Israel had put her trust in the hope of, of of a good economy. And Israel had put her trust, catch this, in being spiritual, but being spiritual without God or spiritual without obedience. That should sound really awfully familiar to you. We live in a nation that is unbelievably divided. We sense it. We see it. We're often afraid to say things because what if we say something to the person on the other side of that divide and we get canceled, get called out? I mean, we live in a very divided nation. We also live in a nation that has put all of her trust and hope in prosperity. And when that prosperity starts fleeing, this nation panics we begin to realize that the economy is, is not our savior, is not our greatest hope, and we cannot and should not put our, our trust in the economy because economies fold. We begin to step back in, in, in anxiousness or, or in fear. We have not had a godly leader in the White House in a long time. John Durham on hbcwayco.org if you want to talk about that this week. <laughs> We live in a time of division. We live in a time with very little godly leadership. We live in a time where we have put our hope in the economy or in prosperity. And listen to this, our nation does a great job being spiritual, but spiritual without God or spiritual without obedience to God. And so we find ourselves in a very similar place where Israel finds herself. The Assyrians are the great world power at this point. And they are surrounding smaller nations and they are devouring them. The Assyrian Empire is growing and they're enslaving the nations in which they are, they are conquering. And so now they're beginning to make their way toward, toward the northern border of Israel, which is the, the, the northern tribes, the 10 northern tribes. The Assyrian Empire is beginning to surround them. So, so Israel panics and they make an unholy alliance with Syria, hoping that maybe a partner can kind of help get them out of this This financial bind and this militaristic bind in which they find themselves, but it's gonna be to no avail. It's not on the screen, but it is in your Bible. Go back just one page to Isaiah chapter eight. Just go right before this, the last verse of chapter eight, verse 22, chapter eight, verse 22. Uh, look what Isaiah says about the, the impending doom, the, the, the coming Assyrians. Look, look, what the, look what the hope is or the lack thereof, thereof for Israel. Uh, verse 22, And they look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. So Israel is under attack, and these were dark times. It was times of, of fear and uncertainty. What, what God's going to do is he's going to step in Here in chapter 9, and he's going to say, oh, I will be faithful to my people. My promises will hold. I will fulfill my promise to you because there's a king that's coming. And this king is right, and this king is good, and he will be the king over my kingdom. That's why what we're about to read in chapter 9 is vibrant. And, and, and it's filled with joy. There's an upbeat passage we're about to enter into here, here in chapter 9 because the good news of a coming king comes here in the middle of these dark times. Now, that was a long runway. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he, meaning God, brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Let's stop right there. God had brought judgment upon these two northern tribes. Now, uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, I mean, they are people, but he's not speaking of two individual people. He's speaking of the tribes. And these two tribes are in the northern part of, of Israel. And God had judged them. In fact, God was going to let them be judged because the Assyrians were going to come in and and attack and, and invade. In fact, the invasion of the Assyrians would be terrible for all the Jewish people, but specifically for these northern regions of Israel, which while we have here, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, they would be ravaged by the Assyrians when the Assyrians came in. The promise of the land, which seems to be almost unesteemed by God, is that one day this exact same land in the northern part of Israel would be esteemed. It would have a special blessing. God is saying that the people to whom he has showed judgment, one day he will show these, these tribes, these people, a day of, of mercy. That's why you see the word there in verse one, glorious. There was a glorious grace that was gonna appear there in, in the Galilee. So chapter nine, verse two, uh, Jared quoted this earlier, that the, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. See, this is what makes the good news such good news. God was telling his people that he would be faithful to them. God loved his people so much, but he realized they were walking in darkness, but light was coming. Christ would come, and Jesus would shine brightly upon the people of God, even against that backdrop of darkness. Light looks so much brighter when you see it against a dark backdrop. This is what's happening. People were walking in in the darkness of division. They were walking in the darkness of of misplaced trust in the economy. They were walking in the darkness of disobedience to God, but God said, I still love you, and I am coming. I'm going to send light to you. Now, how do we know that Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2, is about Jesus? How do we know specifically this is about Christ? Well, let me Let me point something to you. It's going to be on the screen. I hope we've had some tech issues all morning long, so it should be on the screen a little bit. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. This is Matthew's gospel writing about the life of Jesus. Look what he says. Now, when Jesus heard that John, John the Baptist, had been arrested, he, Jesus, withdrew into Galilee. We just saw that word in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, that's the Sea of Galilee, in the territory, don't miss this, of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, we just read it, might be fulfilled. Verse 15 of Matthew chapter four, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness, they have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Clearly, we see Isaiah's prophecy fulfilled in Jesus. So Matt, what does he do? He quotes Isaiah chapter nine as fulfilled in the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, and now the gospel proclamation of Jesus. Matthew point. I did call him Matt. Matthew calls, calls us back to the time of Isaiah to remember the prophecy because what is the glorious appearing in Galilee? It is Jesus himself, Capernaum, right there in the tribes, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. How long did Jesus stay there? For 18 months. He came and made this place that was once barren, once under judgment. It has now become glorious because Jesus is now healing people, sharing the kingdom of the gospel, calling people to repentance because the kingdom of God was at hand. So there's two things we see from chapter 9, verse 1 and verse 2. Here's the first thing. The light of Jesus transforms gloomy places into glorious places. That's what we find in Isaiah chapter 2. Jesus comes and he transforms this land that was, that was barren, this land that was under contempt, this land that was under judgment from God. He now moves it into this glorious place. Remember verse 1 of chapter 9 of Isaiah. Zebulun and Naphtali, there were those two regions They were just constantly in war, constantly fearful, constantly in battle because of their northern location. If you're going to attack Israel, you come from the north. Today, military strategists will say if you're going to attack Israel, you come from the north. And so certainly those two places had seen war, they had seen battle, they had seen the judgment of God, but these places were now going to become, verse 1, glorious by the presence of the light of Jesus. Now let me just, let's bring this home. That's a lot of history. That's a lot of things that's 6,000 miles away from here. What does this mean for your life? This is true of every believer in this room. Whatever chaos you're going through, even if it feels like your life is crumbling in front of you right now, whatever grief you're experiencing or a place of hurt where you find yourself or some constant battle that you might even bring into this room, Jesus can transform it all. His light can come in to places in your life and he can transform. He redeems dark times. He transforms dark places. But secondly, it's not just places. How about this? The light of Jesus transforms gloomy people into glorious people. Do you see all the dark words that are used here, the sad words that are used here? It begins back in chapter 8, verse 22. We read that. It's not on the screen. It is in your Bible. Uh, we see the word distress. We see the word darkness. We see the word gloom. We see the word anguish. We see the phrase thick darkness in verse 22 of chapter 8. Jump down to chapter 9 now. We see the word gloom there. Uh, we see the word uh, of contempt there. Uh, we see in verse 2 the word darkness. We see in verse 2 the phrase deep darkness. I mean, this is what people were living in. People who do not know Christ in Waco, they're living in that same manner, in darkness, under judgment, in fear, in thick darkness, in gloom, and and in anguish. And here's what Jesus does. He comes into our lives. And it's just not that he brings forgiveness. He does. He brings the glory of God into our lives. So in that way, the light of Jesus transforms gloomy people, people of anguish, people of distress, into people of glory. This is what John says in John chapter 1, that Christ is the light of man. So let's just make this practical again. Jesus transforms people of despair into people of hope people of despondency into people of life, people of sadness into people of joy. You're walking from darkness into the light. So look on the screen again. I hope it's gonna be there in a second. John chapter eight, look at verse 12. This is uh, John's account of Jesus. When Jesus again spoke to the people, Jesus said, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Christian, live with what you've been given. You've been given the glory of God to reside inside of you. You've been given the light of the world to reside inside of you. Jesus, certainly his light, turns gloomy people into people of glory. Now, what is Christ's arrival going to mean? Let's continue on here in Isaiah chapter nine. Look at verse three with me. Isaiah chapter nine, verse three. You have multiplied the nation. God, you've increased its joy, if you will, in the sending of this Messiah. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and they are glad when they divide the spoil. Verse four, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, God, you have broken as on the day of Midian for every boot of the tramping warrior in, in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. What is happening there? Four things. Four things that happened because Christ has come. Christ's arrival means these four things. First of all, Christ's arrival means inclusion in a family. It means we can belong to his family. We we see kind of a, a prophecy of that, if you will, in verse one. The very last few words say Galilee of the nations, plural. So now God's talking about moving his covenant promises, his blessing outside of just the nation of Israel. And now he's talking in a plural sense, nations. In fact, your Bible may not use the word nations there. Your Bible might use the word Gentiles. In other words, those who are outside of the covenant family of God in Israel. And so we see God bringing in the, the nations. We see the same phrase used here, uh, the, the same thought used here in verse three, the beginning of verse three, you have multiplied the nation. You're, you're growing your kingdom. This light of Christ is gonna come and the gospel is gonna grow. So God's gonna draw in the unchosen. And for every Gentile in this room today, that's good news. That God's going to draw in and call in the outsiders. Here's really the story of Christmas. The almighty God of heaven is an adopting father. And he brings in sons and he brings in daughters through the son, Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus brings you into God's family. And I know that here in our nation, it's hard to believe this, but the gospel of Jesus is multiplying rapidly around the world. It seems so stagnant here. We look up in our nation and we think, where's God? Probably what we need to do is look up in our nation and say, where's the church? Where's the gospel tellers? Where are the gospel bears? But God is actively at work around the world. He may seem stagnant in the U.S. He is not stagnant around the world. There's some amazing things happening in the year 2000, which... For someone like me, it doesn't sound like that long ago. I know if you're a college freshman, it sounds like an eternity ago. But in the year 2000, just 22 years ago, there were 5,000 Christians in Iran, 5,000. Over the course of the last 22 years, missiologists now say we have seen the fastest growing evangelical movement in the history of Christianity. There are now 1 million Christians in Iran, which means that there are more Christians... More people in Iran have come to faith in Christ in the last 20 years as they have the last 13 centuries combined. And so we look at at Iran and we think they're our geopolitical enemy or maybe our World Cup enemy from this this past week. (laughs) They're family. We have growing brothers and sisters in the nation of, of Iran. They are not our enemy. Satan is our enemy. The people of Iran is a ripe harvest. They are a ripe harvest for the gospel of Christ. So the nations that we were seeing right now, the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter nine, that the gospel will be for all of the nations, that Christ will multiply the nation. Today in Nepal, there are three million believers. That may not sound like a whole lot to you, but Nepal is not a large nation. In the year 2000, again, 22 years ago, 1% of the Nepalese population were Christians. Now it's 10% of the population. But catch this, in 2015, Nepal changed their constitution that made Christian faith evangelism illegal. Missiologists can point to that very same year, the year 2015, when you could not be killed, but you could be persecuted, you could be jailed for sharing the gospel. That is when the fire of the gospel took off in Nepal. It's also why last year we raised money to build a church in Nepal, because we believe so strongly that God is multiplying the, the nations. There are now in China. There are now more Christians in China than there are members of the Communist Party in China. About 115 to 120 million Christians in China. And I would say, you may disagree. You already have my email. I think there's actually more Christians in China than there are Christians in the United States right now. God is multiplying the nations, like in front of our very eyes. Just whether it be in Nepal, whether it be in Iran. Whether it be in China, we are seeing the fulfillment of what God told us would happen, that he would multiply the nation, that the gospel, the light of Christ would be for all of the nations. And God is doing this in our day. Here's the third thing. Christ's arrival means a celebration of joy. It's why Christmas music, unless you're dead in your heart, makes you smile a little bit. Or, or, or tap your feet. The, the, the Durham family, we're big believers that you should start Christmas music on like July 5th, like the day after July 4th. Celebrate America and let's celebrate Jesus coming the day after. We love Christmas music. There's something about Christmas music that just makes you smile. It brings joy. It should bring us joy. And this is exactly what's happening here in verse three. You have multiplied the nation, catch all these usages of joy. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest. And they are glad, another word of joy, when they divide the spoil. And so what we see here, it's like joy at harvest time when you're being able to reap. It's joy in a victory celebration like, like joy in, in Kansas City's locker room yesterday. Just this great joy. Christ brings this joy to our lives. Why should you and I have joy because Christ has come? Because Christ came, we now have an opportunity to stand in the presence of God and have this Jesus declare us not guilty. You see, that brings joy that we are free and forgiven and have right standing. Second Corinthians chapter five verse 21, when Jesus rose from the dead, He conquered our death. He conquered death for every person who would trust in Him. 2 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57, that means there should be this cause of, of great joy in our life. Christ has come for us, Christ lived for us, Christ died for us, Christ rose for us, Christ is coming again for us. And we see the genesis of this at Christmas time: a celebration of joy. Thirdly, Christ's arrival means freedom from bondage. Now look at verse 4. for for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, and the rod of his oppressor. God, you have broken, just like on the day of of Midian. So we have this freedom from bondage from the yoke or from the staff, from the rod, anything that weighed us down. What is it that weighed us down the most? A lack of rescue, a lack of salvation. What weighed us down the most? Trying to rescue ourselves trying to earn our way toward God with with good behavior. Now that this promised one would free us from this legalistic weight of trying to earn God's love, of trying to earn our own rescue. Christ would come and would free all of us in this room today from the weight of sin. The reason Midian is mentioned here in verse four, this is the great battle that Gideon had over the Midianites, over Midian back in Judges chapter seven. It was an absolute victory. A complete victory in the same way as wonderfully complete and victorious as Gideon's victory over Midian, so is the same victory of Jesus Christ over our sin. Christ would come and we would enjoy freedom from bondage. Now, let's make this real practical as well and get ready to squirm. Because Christ came, we can be free from the addiction of pornography. Because Christ came, we can be free from the addiction of pills. And alcohol and spending too much and overeating. I know I'm meddling now. We can be free from the strongholds of sexual sin and anger and and hopelessness and sadness. Because Christ has come. Again, please Don't don't miss this. God has broken the yoke. God has broken the staff. God has broken all these things that, that oppress us. We can be free from the bondage of racism and hatred. We can be free from the bondage of being unfaithful to our spouses. We can be free from the bondage of homosexuality and of arrogance. We can be free from the trappings of lust and worry and, and, and materialism and, and comparing ourselves to others because he who the sun sets free is free indeed. Christ's arrival means freedom from bondage. Here's the last thing, the fourth and last thing. Christ's arrival means peace with God. Look at verse five. It almost sounds like a poem. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult And every garment that's rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Christ's arrival means peace with God. What what does this passage mean? What does verse five mean? Well, shoes and uniforms were burned, listen, when the battle was over. So these warriors would come back and they had been battling, but they won the victory. And so their their clothing, even if it's rolled in, in blood, blood stained, they would burn it because the battle was over. There was now peace in the land. There was now victory. We have peace with God now. Listen, Christian, because the battle is over. Christ has won. We don't have to wrestle with God. We don't have to stand afar from God and, and fear anymore. We don't have to work our way to him. Christ came to us, and Jesus brought the peace that he has with the Father, and he gave that peace to us. Angels in the field said to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, on whom his favor rests. Christ has come. Two things so far. It means there's now a new way to relate to God. And secondly, it now means that light has entered the darkness of our world. And Christian, that light has entered the darkness of your heart. And non Christian, that light can enter the darkness of your heart. What is light? It allows us to see things, it brings understanding that reveals truth, it overcomes darkness. Would you stand with me, please, as we pray together? Father, we are grateful for your word to us today. We thank you for Isaiah, your prophet, whose very name reminds us of the, the meaning of Christmas, that God saves. Christ has come. We can now have peace with God. Christ has come. There's joy in our lives. Christ has come. There's now peace with us. Christ has come, and the gospel is multiplying around the world. And God, as you gather the nations for yourself, don't pass us by. We thank you for your peace, for your presence. Thank you for the gift of your word to us today that Christ has come. And life will never be the same again for those who are in Christ. And for those today who do not know Jesus Christ, that light can enter in. Just believe upon him today. Put your trust, your life in him today. Jesus, thank you for bringing us peace. The peace that you have with the Father you've now given to us. We have right standing with the creator of the universe because Christ has come. Light has entered. Peace has entered. And we praise that one today.